Progressive Rugby League. G'day, g'day. Gee, it's good to hear that theme music again. It has been too long. John O'Duncan back from what I guess you'd call a rock and roll sabbatical. That does make it sound way cooler than it really was, but let's run with it for my ego's sake. In any case, first episode for 2023, and I'm feeling good. You know, my general rule for PRL podcast episodes is to let them come to me. And I don't mean make the guests beg. That reality does not exist. Yet. No, I mean that I just try to let the ideas come to me. But I must confess, I have been struggling a little for inspiration. And I confided as much to a good friend of mine over the Australian summer while we were sitting side by side watching the cricket at the pub. Trying to be helpful, my mate said, you know Matt Elliott has a book out. I responded, you mean former Dragon and coach of the Bradford Bulls, Raiders, Panthers and Warriors and member of ABC Grandstand Rugby League? Yeah, big fan, but I don't know. It all sounds a bit self-helpy to me. My friend, Gaz if you must know, swiveled, seeking eye contact. I eventually and reluctantly obliged. He said, mate, newsflash, everything's self-help. Those philosophers you not so subtly name check to make yourself look smart, self-help. Those conversation-y podcasts you listen to, self-help. A DNM with your mate disguised as an Arvo at the pub watching the cricket, self-help. <laughs> I said, I guess I'm uncomfortable about the connotations. It all feels, with respect, a bit cultish. Gaz replied, I repeat, it's all self-help. You're smart enough to separate the wheat from the chaff. Call it whatever you want, approach it however you want, but don't pretend you're above it. Now go give Matt a call. Chastened, I replied, I don't have his number. Gaz turned to face the cricket with a blank expression, just in time for another come pole. That's all a long way of saying Matthew Elliott has kindly agreed to join the pod to talk some rugby league football and his new book, The Change Room, Play the Game of Your Life, which is a really interesting, accessible and practical guide to setting better foundations for yourself to get more quality out of yourself. More wheat, less chaff. And as well as being an author and founder of the Change Room Mindset and Wellbeing Program, Matt, of course, is a former top-level rugby league player and top-line coach in both the NRL and Super League. And it's a real pleasure to have a chance to pick Matt's brain today about life and footy and, well, is there anything else? Matthew Elliott. A warm welcome to the Progressive Rugby League podcast. Well, what a uh, introduction that was. Um, you know what? I get the. Uh, I have to have a small dry reach when I hear the word self-help as well. So, <laughs> no being uh, you know, with my uh, cultural background, it's probably something that's been a weakness. And yep. the fact that we have to embrace that now is probably a sign of evolution rather than us having to. Uh, dodge the subject yeah no good point and we'll get to we'll get to that i reckon that through the chat so look it's really great to have you on matt really appreciate it i'm going to start off by stealing a a question style from the grade cricketer i had sam perry on the show once so i feel i can do this without a a clip of the ticket now can you explain the the concept of the change room in rugby league terms if you had to boil down the essence of the change room to a rugby league archetype perhaps what do you think it will be yeah that's a, a great question I guess it's a metaphor in a lot of ways. So, you know, what we do know, and if we just use it in rugby league term, players just don't go there and change their clothes. They don't just go there and put their boots and their jerseys on. They actually have to transform 
who they are and what they do because you know they can't dip their shoulder into someone in the fruit and veggie aisle can they <laughs> down in Woolworths so people have to transform whether they be Olympic athletes or you know weekend warriors when they go to that change room they have to transform who they are and what they do and I, I think that that's probably the strongest met- metaphor is the change room mm. and I've seen many many times where you get the nicest person in the world go into there and they come out the uh, exit door and cross that stripe and they are a very different human right yeah now matt can you take us on the journey that you've been on you know from muddle-headed wombat my description to sense-making maestro once again my description because i sense it's been a long process uh but was there a moment in your life or footy career that made you think you know I need something more here. There's got to be a better way than the way that I'm doing things right now. Well, I don't think I'll ever be uh, free of being muddle-headed. <laughs> John, let's be honest about that. And I think if you've got a curious mind, that's always going to be part of the fun of life, right? Mm. Uh, I would hate to know everything. That, that would be a, a burden that I couldn't, mm. I couldn't bear. So, yeah, so I, I think the thing with life is, is that every now and then you you collide probably like you and Gaz was it was that that you yeah. talked about at the beginning of the show where well, you collide with people that have an impact on you and you know quite interestingly I think it was probably early 2000s when I was coaching at the Canberra Raiders I've been to exposed to a little bit of advanced stuff prior to this and just by accident not by me being curious but you know we had a a former person who was connected to the St George Rugby League Club when I played there a guy called George Foster who then became a um, lecturer at Stanford University and then when I started coaching at Bradford he certainly gave me access to some really at those days which was cutting edge approach and you know I got to meet people like Phil Jackson and Bill Walsh so that that had a huge impact on my life and then now, that curiosity took me in a whole lot of different paths, sometimes not always constructive. Mm. But again, I met a mentor one day in a very strange place. I went to a, you know, I snuck into a Deepak Chopra thing in 2007 when, mm. when his stuff was really out there, it was woo-woo stuff, <laughs> you know, for want of a better word. Um, now it's all mainstream, mm. scientifically validated, and he's impacted the way that medicine's practised right across the world. But I got to meet Deepak in 2007 and again another accident really and that really impacted and changed my view of them I was a you know a complete atheist in those days and I'm not to say that I'm an incomplete atheist now but it certainly changed my perspective of life Mm. and how long did it take for most of the pieces to feel like they were starting to fall into place like I'm guessing all the pieces are never perfectly in place but when did you have you know, deep inside that sense of, yep, this is good, I'm feeling the difference, this has been worth the, the time and the effort? Yeah, like, I wish I was a lot smarter and I didn't have to use retrospect as wisdom, mm. you know, but, um, and I wish I could, you know, put it into play. When I first collided with Deepak stuff and, you know, particularly Bill Walsh and, you know, I, I, um, I probably got a little animated with it all and start, and I was so excited that I could see the difference it could make. Mm. But you've got to be careful about being on the cutting edge because not everyone's going to get you, right? Mm. And at that time, you know, for example, I started getting teams to meditate in 2009 when I was coaching at the Panthers and that, that was probably something that 
difficult to explain to the board of directors who were mm. very conservative you know why we're spending money on getting someone in to do that so you know that that's always a fine balance as to when to find out when to implement this stuff if i was smarter and understood look there's a slow burn on this and we can disguise it as performance breathing or something like that as which is what we do now mm. i probably would have been able to uh be a little bit, a little bit more aligned to the leadership that I was exposed to going forward. So, yeah, there was there was times where, you know, I got over animated with the the knowledge that I got exposed to, and there were times where I probably got that right as well. Mm. Yeah, it makes me think. I've spoken to a few people about this, about the, you know, the underrated but it, the fundamental importance of communication in everyday life you know it's it's so important to the success of you know our jobs our everyday relationships with you know loved ones and your partner and your brother and your sister and your mum and your dad and and your workmates and everything and good communication generally leads to to good relationships and bad communication can be the end of them so yeah it's it's a it's a skill in and of itself and you make a really good point you you get all this knowledge but the art of communicating it is is an even bigger challenge. Yeah, and that's the speed of communication. And I knew all of it was really super helpful. And I guess the evidence of that is is that everyone, particularly in the high performance world now, is utilising those you know, those those approaches. So it's just mm. a matter of working out the speed in which to implement them. And that's going to happen with all cutting edge stuff. Like there's stuff around at the moment that's just starting to. And I've sort of been aware of it the last couple of months is that yeah. chat GTP. Mm. Now, old Matt, you know, or younger Matt would have gone, "Oh, this is the best thing ever," and I would be on it for hours every day trying to, mm. you know, utilise the information, having access to that information. I guess now I'm probably a little bit you know, wise in hindsight to go, "Well, let's just do this at the right speed," because at yep. the end of the day, there's nothing that replaces human connection. Yeah. Now, while we're on that, you you were always you know, considered a coach that was at the forefront of trying new methods to get that extra bit of edge. But you mentioned the, the meditation examples, but what are some other examples from your coaching career of approaches that were poo-pooed or met with heavy resistance at the time, but which have since become staples of rugby league preparation? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. Um, I guess the, the breathing approach, performance breathing is a really good example. And you, you've already mentioned the meditation. Mm. Um, there would have been up, you know, some other things as well as in preparation techniques because my background's in sports science. Mm. So a lot of the time, you know, being a head coach and having performance staff employed, you know, trying to push them down certain directions got resistance as well. But, you know, a lot of it now is, is mainstream. And I guess in the late 90s, early 2000s, I identified that when you get to the elite level of any sport, the physical difference, you know, the difference that you can get over your opposition as far as being stronger, faster, fitter, are minute. Mm. You know, everyone in the NRL, for example, is talented. Mm. So how you develop that talent will make a big difference and how you prepare them physically will certainly make a big difference. I just kind of felt you know, all those years back that the big way to get an edge on the opposition is, is to develop mindset. Mm. And that wasn't really well embraced at that time. Mm-hmm. You know, and I guess I've watched Olympians and particularly Winter Olympians like downhill skiers. Remember, I don't know if you remember that they were the first people to really use visualisation. 
Mm. Visualization then was completely out there. Mm. But now it's all been proven scientifically validated by, you know, over a hundred published papers that, you know, visualization done the right way, you know, stimulates, fires and wires the same neural pathways in your brain mm. and, in th- and through your muscles as well. So it's a really efficient way of you know, speeding up uh, development mm. in skill and in mindset. And again, there are things like emotional regulation were things I wanted to experiment with. But when you're at the elite level, mm. my mistake is you're not experimenting. Yep. You've got to implement uh, approaches and, and systems that you know work. And I, yep. I certainly put my hand up there where I, I probably took the risk in trying things that were yet to be established. And, you know, listening to you speak there, Matt, it makes me think, you know, the, the common conversation that comes up when the NRL or, or even Super League is, is looking to expand to to more teams. You know, we're going to 17 this year and we're going to 18. Is We don't have enough players. But my argument is I think we don't have enough coaches. If, if there's anything we're, we're lacking is we don't have enough quality coaches. There's plenty of, you know, big, strong athletes uh, who can, you know, pump a lot in the gym and who can chuck a footy around and can run hard. But coaching is an underrated skill as far as I'm concerned and I'm keen on your thoughts and I just want to bring up a quick example to try to illustrate my point. Before this discussion, uh, I was just quickly watching the cricket, uh, New Zealand versus England and the England test cricket team is a perfect example. Ben Stokes and Brendan McCullum have taken over that team that was one from 17 playing like a busted, boring cricket, losing cricket. All of a sudden, these two blokes come in with a change of mindset, pretty much the same players. They're nine from 10, playing the most amazing cricket probably that's ever been played over an extended period, beating some really high-quality teams. And all that's really changed is a mindset. Oh, perfect example. Great example. And, you know, that that doesn't come without risk Mm. because it's one of those, you know, particularly the style of cricket they're playing, it's one of those ones that, you know, there is a risk of failure doing that, isn't there? Mm. When you're really going for it and scoring at, you know, the, the rate that they score at, but they've obviously, you know, done it with the right personnel there and everyone's embraced it. Mm. And that's a fantastic example of of how that can work. The coaching one's an interesting one, and same with the playing strength. I believe in supply and demand. Mm. And what I mean by that is definitely, look, the quality of player, we've got an extra team that's coming to the NRL, for example, mm. in the upcoming season, the quality of talent will be diluted mm-hmm. for a short period of time. Mm. What's starting to happen now, and you know, clubs like Penrith, you know, clubs like the Roosters and Melbourne Storm, the development of young players and the processes they have around it have set a standard that is starting to be employed right across the NRL. Mm. So what we'll see coming through, they, don't, they get young players ready to play NRL, not win junior competitions. There's a real, um, very big difference between that. It might sound subtle, but yes. it's a massive difference. That's why they have young players of 18, 19 come into their teams mm. and perform straight away. They don't have to learn to play NRL when they play NRL. They've been taught to do it before they arrive. So that's what I see as being quality coaching. Mm. Those coaches that are working in those systems... And you know, we saw Craig Fitzgibbon, for example, come out of the Roosters system. He's done a fair job, hasn't he, at Cronulla? Yeah. Those coaches are there. Mm. Now, there's, you know, I've been exposed to a couple of young coaches that have come into the Dragons, and I go, wow, okay, there's a future in this game. So you know, every now and then we, we have a, 
shift the dynamic as far as everyone's view of how to coach and how to play and how to develop talent mm. and the game will advance. Yep. I would say, and it's pretty interesting, you know, I'm a, I love NFL mm-hmm. and I, lo- you know, I love American sport and I also, you know, I like you know, different sports across the world. I, I am seeing a lot more younger coaches coming into elite sport mm. and because they can embrace the new approach the elite approach without having to overcome resistance like some people with my hair colour have to. <laughs> yeah, right. That's interesting. Now, Matt, reading your book uh, it was really enlightening to me. It taught me a bit about myself. Uh, as I kind of alluded to in the intro, I, I am a bit wary of the concept of, of self-help or self-improvement. That's probably more about me than anything. I guess uh, it comes from the, the connotation of, you know, the dodgy guru who says he has all the answers, but whose real expertise is in fleecing you. Uh, and so honestly, I, I initially approached, <laughs> I initially approached your book with a bit of trepidation, but I realized that when I started to read the information from your book on its merits, and once I stopped labeling things in my mind, it became a lot more straightforward. I realized I was simply being offered a laundry list of common sense suggestions, and that I wasn't being sucked into some kind of uh, cult. Has that kind of initial reaction been a typical kind of reaction from some people, a wariness about your approach that's really more about preconceptions rather than what you're putting forward? I guess the first way to answer that is deal with the term self-help. Yeah. And what, what's happened with that term over a long period of time is, is that there have been people that have tried to exploit it with you know some sort of weird trend. Mm. So I like using the word self-awareness because the lack of self-awareness for me is the biggest cause of what we call mental health on the planet. Yeah, we're experts in what we do, the podcasts that we listen to, the people we meet, the things that we do, the places we go, but we have very little expertise and self-awareness. So we tend to be really good at giving advice to others, but we don't really take any note of the advice that we need to give to ourselves. So I'd like to think... My real ability as I've developed it is not really in coming... All that stuff in the book, I'd like to say I invented it all, but it's all really common sense. Mm. I'd like to think that anyone who reads the book will go, oh, I kind of forgot about that, but I knew that. Do you know what I mean? Or when you talk about whether it be food or exercise or emotional regulation, you're eating food, you're exercising, you're moving around anyway, and you've got emotions whether you like it or not. Mm. So you've, it's kind of a common sense approach into how to make them best for you. Mm. So, yeah, it is kind of self-help, but I, I maybe start one level before that and having some self-awareness because, I, you know, the, my phrase I use in a lot of my presentations that I do is, is that your state is contagious. Mm. So if, you know, and it is, so if I was sitting here yelling at you or going, hey, dude, this is pretty cool uh, doing a uh, podcast like this, you know, you know, yeah. everyone falling asleep. <laughs> so that my question to people I ask them is, well, what are the people that you love and care about catching off you? Because we go unconscious about that. We're so tuned into, you know, how fast our car can go and how much petrol it needs and what I do for a job and what time I've got to get my kids to the school and all these other things that we're experts in, but we're not an expert in ourselves because very rarely do people ask themselves, how you going, mate? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. I guess um, there's a small proportion of people who maybe go the other way, maybe I'm part of that, who are 
painfully self-aware. <laughs> and when I was reading that section about self-awareness, I'm like, yeah, but what do you do about being painfully self-aware when you're kind of like overthinking things? But you also actually uh, address that stuff as well, which is very helpful. Now, Matt, I, I really enjoyed the snippet in your book about Ruben Wiki. Can you share with us what you learned from your time coaching him? How did his approach to footy and life uh, influence you? I think Ruben is a, like the best example of, you know, we hear a lot about post-traumatic stress disorder and, you know, how coming up in a challenging environment, you know, as an upbringing creates problems. Hmm. Uh, Ruben would be called post-traumatic growth, and that's a new thing that I've learned about last year. And Ruben is an example of the exception, not the rule, that we all need to follow, is that his response to adversity in any time, but you know, coming through as a, a young person out of South Auckland and the adversity that he got exposed to, his response to it was, well, now I know not what to do. I'm going to be the best human on the planet. Yeah. And, yeah, the, the people that, are, that share my space, whether it be family, friends, whether it be supporters, you know, they're going to they're gonna see the, the best version of me. Mm. And that's not easy, is it? It's far easier to respond in a different way. You know, the, the one thing I, I loved about Ruben the most, though, was he, could, he was the nicest person on one side of that stripe. But as soon as he crossed that stripe and hit the playing field, I can... Definitely say through evidence and a lot, and talking to a lot of people that played against him, he was very unpleasant to play against. <laughs> yeah, it seemed that way from the sideline too. Definitely, that's the best place to watch. <laughs> not, not on the field. I certainly, if I was watching on the field and I was playing against Ruben, I would have done all I possibly could to avoid going near him. Yeah, yeah. I get the sense from listening to you speak about Ruben. He's the kind of guy who. His goal is to be the best person he's ever been on the day he dies, if you know what I mean. So constantly trying to be a better person every single day so that when it all comes to an end, you were the best person you ever were on that day. I get the sense about Ruben from, from listening to you speak about him. Yeah, and again, his priority is his impact on other people. Yeah. And he's smart enough to know that he can't give away what he doesn't have. So if he wants to have a good impact on other people, he knows that he has to lead a healthy, functional life mm. and care for himself. And that gives it. That's what that was my learning. I, my, I could talk for five hours on what I learned from Ruben, but they were my key learnings from him. There's no doubt about that. That's an interesting one as well, I guess, Matt. There's some people, you know, categorised as more individualistic types, and and some people are more social types. Do you have to tailor your messaging about, you know? self-improvement for want of a better term with that in mind like I'm, I'm assuming individualistic types will gel with thoughts of glory and achievement while more social types will be more attracted to the idea of self-improvement to be a better father a better husband a better friend you know i.e to help their little community in some way is that something you have to keep in mind when you're talking to your clients and and whoever yeah and again some of it depends on again without stereotyping you know, certain industries, if I'm talking to a bunch of miners or police, mm. I certainly have to make sure my messaging connects with them. But if I'm working individually with a, with a footy player or a high-level chief executive, 
again, the messaging does change a little bit based on, yeah. on them, but I just think there's two prime places that message. There's either common sense or nonsense. And, yeah, I think the more that you can simplify things into that are digestible, I don't talk about light subjects, I'll be honest with you. You know, when you start talking about emotional regulation to, you know, 50-year-old white Australian men, they have very small capacity to absorb that. I know that because I am one. So not because we're dumb, because we just never got taught that they were a good, it was a good thing. Mm. We're taught that it was soft. Mm. So it's, yeah, again, as I say, my real craft isn't really in coming up with the science and the knowledge. It's making it accessible to people that they can use it on a daily basis in their life. Not yep. that it makes sense. Making sense is fine, mm-hmm. but having something whether they can actually go, okay, you know what? I can, I can do that every day, yep. and it's and it's free. That's the my big thing with most of the stuff that I share is, is that is, and I'm a little bit of a cynic in that way. Is that mm-hmm. you know the the biggest things that can help people's well being and health don't cost anything. Yeah. Well, you're. You're a bit of a cynic that way. I'm a bit of a tight ass, and when I realised that most of these things were free, that's when you got me, Matt. So that, that was that was good news. Now, Matt, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I sense that the United States has been a, a big influence on your life. Uh, I know you coached the US in the 2013 Rugby League World Cup, but reading the the book gave me a feeling that you're attracted to perhaps the way US culture maybe breeds an unashamedness about the concept of ambition and, and that you're wanting to bring a bit of that, not not all of it by any means, but a bit of that to your Australian clients who, you know, very, very generally speaking and, and stereotyping here, but might be uncomfortable with that concept. Is that a, a fair observation that I'm making? I'm going to tiptoe around this one, Jono. Right. Um, I certainly do admire some of the things that they do, particularly in the elite sporting world, and there's some amazing intelligence coming out of the US around cutting edge methods you know like there's a guy called Dr Mark Hyman who really understands agriculture and and how looking after our planet can help us but I don't have a and I've got to coach the US team Mm. I must admit I don't have a massive admiration for the way that their society operates Mm. now I've spent time there so I could work back from gun laws and you know their agriculture and their food system there and the impacts that they're having on that and I could talk about you know their poor acceptance of cultural difference um, and we we get to see that on the news too often but if you ask me about cultures I do admire I certainly got to spend time in New Zealand I think that there's some models there for the world to see how if you look after where you live, you know, it'll look after you. Um, and while I recognise there's still work to be done, you know, just, you know, if, if Australia could recognise our First Nations people like New Zealand have, I'd certainly be a lot happier. And, I, you know, again, I look at some Scandinavian countries on how they actually prioritise people's well-being over wealth mm-hmm. and I look at some Asian countries on and how they actually relate to each other is certainly yeah so I, I wouldn't put the US in my top 10 John how about that I do have yeah, a no lot worries. of admiration for certain people over there but uh, I'd go and move to the south of France tomorrow I ain't going to California I can tell you 
Yeah, no worries. Uh, that was maybe maybe simplistic of me to suggest that. So, yeah, thank you for, for clearing that up. Much I'm appreciated. not being derogatory, by the way. I've got great friends over there. I've got family over there. I just Of course, yeah. Like, I and just feel like for what is supposed to be the most advanced nation on the planet, they're, they're really missing the important stuff, but that's just me. Yeah, I'm on board with what you're saying, and, uh, yeah, we are talking in, in generalities here, so... Uh, there's a bunch of good examples when there's a few bad examples too. Now, Matt, uh, I am interested in your thoughts about goal setting and success. Uh, these are there are parts of your book that focus on reading the mind and the body uh, for success. What what is success though, and and what role should goal setting play? If I'm honest, I've always found goal setting a bit claustrophobic, but I, maybe I'm in in a minority there. But you know, to you, does reaching the goal that you write down at the start of the year, for example, matter? Have you failed if you don't reach the goals you set? Or is goal setting a mechanism that can get you into better habits uh, and with the, the final result being neither here nor there? What are your thoughts? Not an uncomplicated question, that one, but I'll, I'll, I do have thoughts. And I think, look, there's a place for goals because they set a direction. Yeah. I don't think they set a destination because you'd like to think that life continues to go on. So... Yeah, goals play a part, but I think they have absolutely, and I've made this mistake, so mm. I'm again learning from from suffering rather than awareness. I think the most important thing is making sure that they come, that everything you do comes from your values and your purpose. Mm. So I'll, I'll give you an example. I work with some people that do a lot, and they never stop. They're doing stuff all the time, but they're miserable, <laughs> right? Yeah. And... So doing what they do or, or the doing side of things is not a problem. Mm. But the way that they're being is not impacting themselves in a positive way. And, you know, when I talked about your state being contagious, you've worked with a person like this. You know a person like this. Yeah. All they do is piss and moan. So their impact on the environment isn't, isn't positive because they're not operating from their purpose or values. Mm-hmm. So for me, your purpose is what you want to achieve in life so my purpose is, is I understand mine now better than ever I forgot it for a while I all as a young coach I, I nailed it mm. and as an older coach I forgot it. my purpose is to serve people mm-hmm. and I have values attached to that you know my values are family my values are well-being and my values are being curious we all have different ones so as long as I'm operating from that place you know, I feel like I'm in service. doesn't matter, like, if I don't do that, it doesn't matter if I achieve the goals I want to achieve this year or how much money, I'll be miserable. Mm. I don't want to be, I, I know what it's like to be miserable and I'll, I'll check out of that. So, yeah, I do like affluence and abundance and all that sort of stuff, but not at the expense of, you know, I work with a lot of high-level executives, as I said before, and so many of them who are multis, Mm. Uh, some of the most unhappiest people you'd ever want to meet in your life. Yeah. So, no thanks to that. But, you know, I also met some that, you know, live from their values and purpose and they understand success better than anyone. Yeah. Yeah, interesting you mentioned there about service and, and that's that's a purpose uh, for you. That made me think about rugby league coaching and, and that seems like the obvious thing for, for a rugby league coach to preach but I wonder how many actually do. I'm just thinking now that probably the really successful ones do go by that that motto. 
whereas the ones that maybe don't succeed uh, you know might be a bit defensive and and can't quite bring themselves to to open themselves up to to the service side of things do you have any thoughts on that that is completely accurate what you just said so that you know the long-term successful coaches the first thing they that you know and i again i'm going to talk from a mistake i did i did it really well as a young coach where your most important relationships Hmm. are with your players and your staff you know and it's not about how smart you are to run an organization or come up with strategy that's better than anyone else that's outside your con- your control. Mm. So it's the coaches that, have, that understand how to evolve relationships. So, and you know, like if you look at a Craig Bellamy or a Wayne Bennett or guys that have been around for a long time, mm. you know, the way that they've related with their players 10, 15 years ago, they don't do that anymore. You can't. Mm. We're an evolving species. And their ability to actually upgrade themselves and still connect with the people they're they're with, you know, helps them continue to, to excel in the, in the sport. Mm. Now, Trent Robinson, completely different approach, but does the same thing. He connects with the people around him and has a positive impact on those people. Yeah, it seems to be like for someone like Wayne Bennett, the foundation principle is relationships. Whenever you hear players talking about their experience with Wayne Bennett, they always say how much he cares for them and they don't really talk about the footy side of things, but clearly that really impacts positively their performance because they, they want to do it for him. 100%. And yeah. Wayne's smart enough to know and shows enough vulnerability and humility to let, the, let his assistants do all the, you know, all the strategic development. But mm. he knows when your wife's birthday and your kid's birthdays are. He knows how your mother's health is. He knows, you know... Stuff about that. So when you show up, you know, for training one day, and he's, can you just take this to your dad? I know it's, you know, it's, I know it's their wedding anniversary. How do you respond to that? Are you, are you engaged? Mm. You know, to to respond to what that person wants you to do on a footy field. There's only one answer, really. So that's high level human understanding mm. in the most simplest form. Yeah. Well, while we're on coaching. Curious about your thoughts on the uh, rugby league coaching spray. I think I've heard you you speak about this a couple of times, but I'm sure you've received and given plenty in your time. You mentioned a few in the book. Is the effectiveness of the coaching spray still as strong as ever in the context of modern coaching methods? Or in the modern age, is a spray just the sign of a, a man baby who can't control his emotions? Uh, I mean, so I'm coming from slight denial in this. <laughs> Look, when someone is in an aggressive state, which we used to think was good, it's not. It's not constructive. Mm. If someone's yelling at you, right, you're not hearing a word they're saying at all. Mm. You're just take, reflecting on this person is losing their stuff, okay? Yeah. Occasionally, that might change your state if it's out of the blue. So if someone who very rarely loses his stuff yeah. or their stuff cracks at you, that might get your attention enough to go, oh, okay, well, I'm not doing something that needs to be done here. You might reflect. Mm-hmm. That's probably, again, the exception, not the rule. Most of the time, in my experience, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And it's a selfish act, not an act that benefits the team. Yes, that makes me think when I speak to my mates uh, about coaching when the season starts, 
and, I don't know, a team has lost their first couple and then you see at halftime or after the game, a coach is like given an absolute spray and you think, well, you're really using your quota up really early because the effectiveness of the, the spray, I imagine, diminishes with every spray. So, yeah, you've got to be, you got to pick and choose, I guess. Yeah, and look, everyone thinks that Craig Bellamy yells and screams all the time. He doesn't. Yeah. But there's an intensity to him when he's in the dressing room. Mm. There's the difference between being aggressive and intense. Yeah. So And there's a focus. Yeah, and a real clarity in, in what's being said. Yeah. It's a subtle difference, but it has a huge difference as far as the impact on the people that you're talking to. Mm. So, yeah. yeah, mastering that and having that in the right place is, you know, is a, is a master stroke. And losing your stuff, you've probably got a quota of one a year maximum. Yeah, right. There you go. Now, Matt, um, let's bring it onto the rugby league field if we can. How do we see what you preach, you know, your approach to preparation to life and well-being? How do we see that manifest on a rugby league field? You, know, you mentioned earlier some examples from the preparation side of things, but, you know, I'd be interested to understand if there's anything we see on the field that you see and say, there's no way that that would have happened, you know, a decade ago without a radically changed mindset or approach. Anything on the field? Yeah, as I say, yes is the short answer to that. And that's where performance improved. Well, quite often people say, oh, back in my day. And, you know, I can tell you if the team that I played in played an NRL team, now we get beat by 80. Mm. One, because physically they're they're miles more advanced. Mm. Okay, the speed of collision and the skill set is is past us. And I've got people who I play with who were sitting there, if they listen to this and argue with that, well, I feel one, I've seen the science behind it and I've I've measured the speed of collision and my eyes work when I watch (laughs) the whole game. It is in slow motion. But the real edge, as I said earlier, is in in mindset development and having people been able to maintain full clarity and focus while under extreme duress physically and mentally. Yeah. And that's yeah, that's what we're learning and we're understanding the human capacities a whole lot better now. Mm. And this is kind of my first year working at the Dragons where I'm starting to get the opportunity to work exclusively in that area with individuals. Mm-hmm. And it's not complex. It's like my book, the stuff, you know, you, people think that mindset training is super complex. It's not. Mm. I'll give you a really quick example. Is, can I do that? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So everyone, I'm going to give you some bad news first because everyone understands the bad news because we have that shoved down our throat. So mm-hmm. if you're anxious, mm-hmm. for example, you have a thousand thoughts attached to that one feeling of anxiety. Is that right? Oh, God, when, how long is Matthew Ellick going to talk for? And, oh, shit, this is, this is driving me out the wall. And, do you know what I mean? You have yeah. one feeling attaches a thousand thoughts to it mm-hmm. that aren't helpful. Do you understand that? I do. You're a human, right? So you've experienced it. We all have. Mm-hmm. And if you stay in that state, eventually, will your performance go up or down? It goes down. Will there be a health consequence? Absolutely, there'll be a health consequence. It's the biggest cause of disease and death on the planet. People's perception of threat, depression or anxiety. Okay, we call Mm -hmm. it mental health. So, you understand that? I do. 100%. Yep. So, does it make sense to you if you can have an emotion that elevates you, say, say one of clarity, focus, intensity, whatever it is that makes you hum in a, in a performance side of things, does it make 
a whole lot of sense that you can attach a whole lot of positive thoughts to that and they, they accumulate from there. Hmm. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. Yeah, and that the outcome will be improved performance. Sounds simple. Yeah, well, it is simple, but it's, it's a reality. Just one, as I keep saying, one's, it's easier to sit on the lounge than it is to exercise. Yeah. It's easier to go to Macca's than it is to cook a home-cooked meal. It's easier to have the shits than it is to be uplifted. It's easier to be a victim than it is to be inspired. But if you can learn those states that are best for you in performance and attach a whole lot of thoughts, your execution goes through the roof. Mm. And it's... Sorry. I was just saying, LeBron James is the best example of it. Mm. If you ever watched him play, you know what he does when he's sitting on on the bench? Uh, He does breathing and mindfulness. Yeah. Why? Not because... He's a monk. He is committed to being so ruthless out on that court and executing his craft better than anyone else could possibly imagine. Mm. That's why he does it. So just giving people access for that, what does that make sense? It does make sense. Well, how do you get better at it? Well, you practice it. You do it constantly. Oh, okay. You don't need to do it for four hours. You don't even need to do it for 10 minutes. Mm. But you need to do it consistently. That makes and me, that doesn't apply just to sport. Yeah, no. That makes me think of a, an interview I saw with a, a musician. His name's Gareth Lydiard, and he, he writes great songs. And he wrote a, a solo album once with songs that were like, you know, eight, ten minutes each, right? And the journalist was like, how do you remember how to play and play these songs and remember all the words? Because it's very kind of wordy kind of songwriting. And he said... He just kind of looked at him and just said, there is no, basically said there's no kind of magically just, it's so boring. You just got to practice and practice and practice and practice and play it over and over and over again until you know it, until you don't make mistakes, until you're, you're doing it perfectly. And it kind of made me think it's, it sounds so obvious. Of course, that's the only way you can do it. But in our minds, it's like, you'll see him on stage. It's like, oh, it's, they're a magician. They're somehow remembering all these words. They're remembering all these chords, these intricate songs. It's it's magic, but um, he kind of uh, t- gave us a peek behind the curtain. It's actually really dull and banal, and and every day just practice. Yep. yep. And ultimately, that's like anything in human life. If you want to get better at it, you got to put the work into it, the reps. It doesn't mean work sounds like it's hard. It doesn't have to be hard. Mm. So the stuff that I'm talking about, developing mindset, it's easy to explain. Easy to do, but it's obviously hard for people to do it consistently because yep. people don't grab hold. Only the, the elite people in sport do it at the moment. Mm. But it's not a, just a sporting thing. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Matt, we are running out of time. Uh, you know, thanks very much for your, your great contributions today. It's been fascinating. One more question, if I may, and it's nothing to do with what we've been speaking about, or, or maybe it is, uh, but basically, we have a lot of UK listeners to this pod where we love and respect UK Rugby League and I like to reward those loyal listeners any chance I get. So can you help me out by maybe sharing with us an anecdote from your time in the UK that symbolises what that period of time taught you about footy and or life? Uh, You obviously had a very successful time there and you must have learned a lot. Yeah, again, that's going to be a really simple answer to that, John, this one is that it's not the like most uplifting part
part of the planet to live, right? It's cold. They get a lot of rain in the north of England. But what I learned from the people there was the value of fun. Mm. They are the funniest people on the planet. Like in the most miserable climate on the planet, they are hilarious. Yeah. And what you get to learn is, is that was a really good teaching. I don't go too DNM about it, but you know, any organisation I've I've been a part of that's been super productive, fun has been a part of the formula. Mm. You know, it hasn't been just going there and work hard and do stuff. And I learned that from the the community I lived in. I learned it from the players that I coach. So. Mm. It's something that you know, I really highly value and I try and make sure I you know, bring it in my everyday life as well. Mm. I won't use the swear words they use as much as well. They, they, did, they do, in Yorkshire, do like an expletive. They taught, say that. they taught you a few? No, they didn't teach me so many, <laughs> but they certainly, as I say, taught me to utilise them in a whole lot of different ways. They had the repetition going uh, quite well for that. They did. Well, I must say, I learned to use words in a different way in New Zealand as well, but we won't go into that. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> well, uh, Matt, you have been uh, extremely generous with your time. Congrats uh, again on the book. It's a great read and it's definitely not too far out there. It's, there's very minimal, if any, guru babble at all, and I heartily commend it to our listeners for consideration. So, um, Matthew Elliott, thank you so much for coming along on the Progressive Rugby League podcast. Absolute pleasure, mate. Absolute pleasure. Progressive Rugby League. There you have it, ladies and gents. It is good to be back, and hopefully that was an interesting way to kick things off in 23. I certainly enjoyed Matt's company. Yeah, and as you've probably noticed, this pod is getting more and more irregular. I apologize for that. Still love doing it, but you know, time, etc., etc. So if you enjoy the show, can I suggest maybe subscribing to the pod on your podcast player of choice so that any episodes that do come out aren't lost in the peak podcast rush. Alrighty, let's call it a night for another day and a day for another night, whatever time zone you're in. Thanks as always, ladies and gents, until we next meet somewhere in a stretching and or breathing circle. Rugby League, and see ya. 